The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome back to the Utah Opera, Utah Symphony Ghostlight Podcast, a behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm Jeff Counts. And I'm Carol Anderson. Utah Symphony is presenting Olivier Messiaen's 20th century masterpiece from the canyons to the stars in an unusual way this season. Instead of programming the mammoth work in one evening, the 12 movements are peppered throughout the year. We're joined today by Utah Symphony principal keyboard, Dr. Jason Harding, who is a Messiaen specialist and will perform the difficult piano part on these concerts. Welcome, Jason. Thanks for having me. It's actually welcome back, Jason. You've been on this podcast before, and it's great to have you back. Carol mentioned that you're a specialist in this particular composer, and I know that you have a long history with him. So just let's jump right in. Tell us what makes him so special for you and what your background is with his music. I think uh, there are a number of composers back when I was getting my doctorate that I feel like my initial encounter with their music shaped my career and my sort of adult life as a musician. Charles Ives, Jason Eckhart, and Olivier Messiaen. Uh, Messiaen sort of taking over my life for a while. I wrote my thesis on him. My final doctoral recital was the entire two-hour-plus cycle, the 20 Contemplations of the Christ Child. Um, so I was clearly obsessed right away. Is obsessed the right word? I mean, is that it's, it is an obsession, isn't it? You still play these pieces. It's not like you've done them once and moved on. No, definitely not. Yeah. Yeah. This isn't the first time you've been involved in a Messiaen event in Salt Lake City, correct? Could you talk more about the 2006 festival that you curated? I think curated is kind of a strong word. You know, the way that came about was the Utah Symphony decided to program From the Canyons to the Stars for the first time in this orchestra's history, which I think was a big deal because the piece at that point was a good 30 years old and it had never been performed in its entirety in Utah. And that just, it was the year before, or maybe two years before the 100th anniversary of the birth of Olivier Messiaen. We knew that a lot of orchestras and other arts organizations around the country and around the world were going to be celebrating that. So to do it, have a kind of Messiaen celebration here a couple years early, felt like we were uh, getting a head start on the celebration. And so we just grabbed a bunch of community partners, really, and put together a festival built around the orchestra's presentation of this piece. I think you're being a little modest because curate is definitely the right word. You came up with the concept. You and I actually, full disclosure, worked on a lot of this stuff together back then. And in terms of minutes of music played by you that week, Jason, it was a lot. You did the entire event regard. Possibly very stupid. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Very obsessed. I think we go back to that word. But as you mentioned, the festival during that week was based on the performance of the Canyons to the Stars. That was sort of the impetus, and you were lucky enough to play it then as well. Yes. So you've done this piece before. In that setting, you did it as a standard presentation, all the movements in one night, as intended. But Terry Fisher's vision for this is a little bit different. As Carol mentioned in the intro, it's being sort of spread out throughout the season. And I wonder, what's different about that for you? How is this iteration different? Is it harder to do it in smaller chunks over time? Is it easier? Is it both? Yeah, I like both. Yeah. Um, the thing it allows me to do is w- when you perform the whole piece, especially back in 2006, it was my first time with the piece, performing the whole thing from beginning to end. You know, I had a dress rehearsal and two performances. Those were my chances to run the piece from beginning to the end. So only three times with the music in its entirety. It's a lot to take in initially. So this really gives me a chance to, you know, what movement are we doing next week? And... Uh, or it's more like, what movement are we doing four months from now that I'm already starting to practice and 
sort of proceeding very methodically and slowly, which is kind of a luxury I didn't have last time. This music is very important to Terry Fisher, mm -hmm. and I know that the two of you have probably bonded in a certain way over this music. So is it exciting to do this with him? I know you did it with Keith Lockhart before. This experience with Terry is probably very different. I mean, how do, how do the two experiences compare in terms of the way they approach the piece? Oh, yeah, interesting. You know, right now I'm still so taken aback by the the kind of setting in which I'm performing these pieces. Sometimes I play a soloistic role, but the piano's at the back of the orchestra. Or sometimes I have to walk out and play a five-minute movement, take a quick bow, and then go to my seat at the back of the orchestra and play Pines of Rome. Honestly, that's the, the main thing that I've been, not struggling with, but has been my focus. So yeah, certainly the interpretations are different, but I'm not really thinking about that much. I want to, I do want to react to something you just said. And it's the fact that these, each of these performances for you are in a very different sort of setting. And occasionally you're actually performing parts of this piece on concerts that feature other pianists mm -hmm. in the war of soloist guys. Is that weird? Does that get into your head? What's it like kind of moving around the stage and being, sharing the stage in it, so to speak? Yeah, I think that... Yeah, I, I think I was worried about that further out. You know, the last concert that we did, I think I played a solo, the fourth, fourth movement of the Messian as a solo, solo movement, just piano. And there was a Mozart piano concerto played by Till Fellner on the same concert. And Messian and Mozart are so different. It's like, I did feel bad that I performed first because I walk out there and I play this really extroverted, uh, super bright, virtuosic, uh, modern piece. And then he plays kind of a more introverted, classical, sort of brooding piece. I guess in the end, we just have to all trust each other that we're there doing our own thing. I'm not really intimidated by the setting, and I don't think anyone coming to like you know nail their concerto is intimidated either. He was amazing, and um, and we got along just great. So I think the, the the struggle for me is more the the situation I described earlier, which is. It's really strange to like the concert where we did the Pines of Rome and I think I played the second movement of the Messian. That was so, the Orioles, right? Yeah, exactly. So walk out and you're like, you, you have to jump into like full on soloist mode. You're playing cadenzas. Everyone's just sitting there listening to you. And then as soon as it's done, all that adrenaline is flowing and you just sit there and you're like good soldier play the piano part to Pines of Rome right. from the same position that I played the Orioles movement and try to just let your heart beat come down and try to fit in with it, you know. So to, it's really strange for me to like work yourself up to that sort of peak level of like soloist adrenaline and then try to tamp it down as soon as you're done and play At least there's role. some birds in Pines of Rome. You can at least sort of latch on to that, right? <laughs> well, and this brings me to something. Did you and Thierry work together to program and decide which movements fit where? Did you have input in that process? Definitely not. Oh, that's just curious. completely his vision. Um, I mean, I think the one that's going to, people are either going to love, absolutely love or absolutely hate, which is kind of exciting, is basically... We're going to hear two movements of the Beethoven Pastorale. I'm going to play that Messian movement, and then the Pastorale is going to keep going. And I, you know, ideas like that, I think, are in my own programming, I would never want to interrupt a symphony. But if someone else is giving me permission to interrupt the symphony, that's kind of exciting because I, you know, it's my job and I have to do it. Mm -hmm. And it's only possible in a setting like this to do those sorts of things. Right. Spread the movements out to right. try these kind of creative things.
so the other night we were sitting in the musicians lounge and we were just talking and you said something really interesting you said that of all the 20th century masterworks the utah symphony should have ownership of from the canyons to the stars and i found that just a really profound statement i'm just curious what does that mean to you well you know a lot of my thinking about this piece is that i do feel like even though i play the role of a soloist in this piece that there really is a collective kind of music making that is really special to me with this piece performed in Utah. It's, it's kind of hard to articulate, I guess, but I just love the idea that this composer, as one of the most important 20th century musical minds, came to Utah and, and researched, uh, you know, birdsong and the sort of landscape and incorporated it into a piece that musicians that I know all from all over the world, you know, respect and admire. And it, but it's like I feel like it's our piece because it's, it's our a long state. way of saying yeah. that I I I just it's and it sort of blows my mind that sort of having this relationship with Messian over all this music over all these years, um, and that there's this piece that he came here to, because um, even if he had never done that, I would obviously still be obsessed with this music. So it's a really special thing for the orchestra, and um, I, I'm. Still in shock that we're recording it for Hyperion. Yes, you're recording it at the end of the season, correct? Mm -hmm. In spring. And so you're going to join a pretty small class of pianists who have actually recorded this amazing piece. What are you thinking about as you get towards that, that date that's looming sort of in the future? Thinking about a lot of things, I guess. I mean, one is that I have two very different types of experiences with the piece planned beforehand. One is the Utah Symphony, one or two movements at a time version that we're doing. And then I also uh, kind of went out of my way to try to find a gig, <laughs> for lack of a better word, where I do get to play the whole thing from beginning to end. I'm playing with the Oberlin Contemporary uh, Music Ensemble at the beginning of April. And I just think that the timing of that is so critical because I really want to re-experience the piece as a 90-minute journey before we record it because I'm sure things are going to come up during those rehearsals and those performance that I need to be reminded of to kind of incorporate into the recording. And what a thrill for them to have you back. You're an Oberlin alum, mm -hmm. correct? So forgive the pretense of this next comment, which will have a question in it, I promise, Jason. But I think it's fascinating that you're, you're the guy doing this recording with this orchestra to whom the piece probably ought to belong based on its subject matter. Because like Messiaen, you were drawn to Utah for similar reasons. You fell in love with him before you ever came here. The two of you sort of found this place differently, him in 1976, you quite a bit later. Mm -hmm. um, does, that, does that part of this speak to you at all? Does, do you feel connected to him in a way that might be a little bit more cosmic than just academic? I think that connection, anyone who knows the Utah desert can have that same experience. Because we've all had that, that, you know, first time you walk up to Grandview Point in Canyonlands or, or see Delicate Arch or any one of those awe-inspiring moments. That's kind of what this piece is all about, um, that experience of awe uh, when faced with these, this kind of version of creation, like the Utah desert. There's nothing else like it in the world. So actually, I don't feel any special kinship with him because of that. I think, I, I think the piece is a, accessible to Utahns in, in a special way for the, exactly the reason you're pointing out, that anyone who's experienced that magic will hear that in the piece, I think. 
your refusal to be pretentious in this moment is exactly why you're the right guy for the job, Jason. So um, that is a wonderful answer, though. I, I remind you that we're at the part of the show that you know well. We're at, the, we're at the ghost story part of the show. And I'll remind listeners that Jason had easily one of the greatest ghost stories of season one in which he and some friends with a Ouija board channeled Leonard Bernstein, which ended up in the creation, the spiritually divined creation of a string quartet. <laughs> I, I, I urge you to go back and listen to that. So Jason, I've of course got to ask you again, if you've got a new ghost story to share with us today. <laughs> uh, I can't believe I shared that with you in the world. It's you did. Ridiculous. You did. It's, uh, it's on tape. No, honestly, you know, if that hadn't happened to me, you know, my answer would be pretty boring is that I, you know, um, I haven't really had any kind of paranormal <laughs> experiences. I mean, I think when knowing that you might ask this question again, I was hoping you wouldn't, but um, <laughs> I was trying to think of like a sort of positive version of what you're after, which is, um, you know, when we first saw the ultrasound of well, we could only see one of our boys. We had twins. We could only see the ultrasound of one of their faces when they were in the womb. And he looked just like my late father-in-law, you know. And wow. it wasn't like, ooh, I've, you know, like a ghostly thing, but it just had this, it felt like this moment of uh, really feeling like the ways in which you might live on after you're physically gone from this world. Sort of you a know? conflation of time periods. Yeah, to yeah. see that. His wow. features remind me of uh, my wife's father. You know, it was really yeah. – now, that's the best I can do today. <laughs> I don't know that we could ask for any better, Carol. Nope. Well, Jason, we appreciate you taking time to come and visit with us and talk about your passion for Messiaen. We're looking forward to hearing more of those movements throughout the season. And, of course, the release of the recording is going to be a thrill. Thanks, Jason. Looking forward to it. Thanks for having me. The Ghostlight Podcast is produced and edited by Robert Bedont. Be sure to visit utahsymphony.org and utahopera.org for more information on upcoming performances. If you're not already a seasoned subscriber, click on the tickets button to learn more about the benefits of being a part of our family of music lovers. The Utah Symphony and Utah Opera season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation. <laughs>